Welcome to Why Not Change the World, the RPI podcast. I'm Reeve Hamilton. On this episode, we're going to do something different. We're going to listen in on a conversation with two very special guests that was recorded at a dinner event at the Village Pub in Woodside, California in May of 2019. It was moderated by Sheikha Garde, the Dean of Engineering at Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute. I'll let him introduce the guest. Okay, so now it's my pleasure to introduce Dr. Martian Edward Ted Hoff, Jr., Electrical Engineering Class of 1958. He's known as the father of the microprocessor. Intel advertisement called him a rock star. And he is. (laughs) He has a long, long list of awards, and I won't want to go through, but I'll tell you that he was the first Intel Fellow. In 1996, he was inducted in the National Inventors Hall of Fame. And in 2009, President Barack Obama honored him with the National Medal of Technology and Innovation. So Ted, it's, it's a pleasure to welcome you. Our, our, another rock star here is Mr. Curtis R. Priam, Electrical Engineering Class of 1982. As you all know, Curtis is the inventor of the graphics processor, which has changed the world. He's also co-founder and former CTO of the NVIDIA Corporation. Um, he was a member of Board of Trustees of RPI from 2003 to 2007, and, and currently he is the Secretary of the Board of uh, Trustees uh, since 2016. Curtis Priam has more than 200 patents, U.S. and international, to his name, and he is, he is one of the strongest supporter, strongest cheerleaders, uh, strongest friend that, that Rensselaer can have. So Curtis, thank you very much for this year. This is Reeve again. As you can probably tell, the audio quality is admittedly less than ideal, but it's a rare treat to hear from these two accomplished inventors. We'll actually join in at the end of a long conversation, the full version of which can be found on SoundCloud, as they both look to the future, prompted by this question from Shaker to Ted Hoff. I know that the audience will have lots of questions about what is the future like, or did you anticipate your inventions to, to grow exponentially and change the world? I'm going to spare those questions, uh, but but I'll ask you one question. You know, Curtis mentioned that we have 20,000 applications and 16, 1,700 young people come to Rensselaer, you know, thinking about the future. If one of them were here in front of you, what would be your advice to them? Well, right now I'm mostly concerned about the planet, and it it seems to me that. If you look at the human population, it grew by roughly a factor of four in the last century. And it's growing at that rate today. We are also increasing the standard of living in many parts of the world, which means their use of energy is going up. And to the extent that we burn fossil fuels, to create that energy, we are adding carbon dioxide to the atmosphere. And indications are it's already having an impact on such as thinning the polar ice caps. And people say, well, but the oceans will absorb the excess carbon dioxide. That may be true, but it's affecting coral reefs which are really part of the food chain of those populations that depend highly on seafood for their 
protein. So one of the areas I think that we need to be looking at, how do we break our habit of generating energy by dumping garbage into the atmosphere, which is basically what we're doing. Can we come up with systems that basically don't change the content of our oceans and our atmosphere? And that, I think, needs to be one of the biggest areas. And I would think that the people who solve that will end up having a very positive economic outcome. <laughs> you know, uh, this uh, brings us full circle to your Westinghouse competition project, taking CO2 plus. Right. Curtis, what is your message to, well, to incoming students? Uh, I mean, yeah. we'll, we'll just sort of probably finish off on the stone. I'm actually moving in the direction of actually caring about the planet a lot more. And it's through Actually, where we live, we've been off the grid for 12 years. No electricity, no ethernet, no cell phone, no sewage, no water. We, we, are, we have a landline connected up for emergency reasons. But we have to basically, we have a very nice house. We're having to live in the style that everybody else does. And we have to create everything from scratch. And so, because I'm an engineer, I can measure everything. So, like in the last 12 years, we're now approaching 2.1 million pounds of CO2 we have dumped into the air just from our liquid propane generator. And, and we have to replace the generator. It was funny, we were on a conference call, and Ted actually had to take off because they were going to deliver a generator. To, you know. <laughs> and, and it's like, oh, you know, and, and it's 12-week wait time on generators, and pg is going to make it worse. But anyway... I, I got caught up in this whole belief system of, oh, let's use batteries, you know, like cars and stuff. And we actually, we have a UPS system that runs the house. So when we switch between generators, the diesel and the propane, you can't even tell. And so it's like we had a big battery bank and it only lasted 10 months and then it died. And then it cost $15,000 to replace the batteries. And that started me on my journey of actually figuring out where all, you know, what's happening in the energy area. And it, it comes down to, it's like, you know, in the very first Tesla car, it actually, if you, re, if you include replacing the batteries, it gets about five miles per gallon. My H1 Hummers get 10 miles per gallon. Because we don't actually look at how much energy is actually being burnt around the world to keep us in a, the lifestyle that we have. And so I'll just leave you with, you know, the conclusions of this 12-year path, which is take your, your salary, your income for your family, and you can divide by three. And that's basically how many gallons of fuel you're burning somewhere in the world to support your lifestyle. Or in other words, multiply by four, that's how many pounds of CO2 you, your family is putting into the environment. So I don't think that all these technologies are not like the microprocessor in silicon where it doubles every 18, years, 18 months and we can actually work our way out of this with technology. It's, it's the arrogance of the United States that we are going to export all our pollution to the rest of the world, to the people under the poverty line, that is actually really, really causing harm to the world. 
and what we have to start doing is start looking at what we are doing on in our own country and the sad part about it is it will come back to if we're going to save this planet we need to limit our population and limit our population we need to take it back you know we can cut our population in half and we'll just take it back to where we were in 1972 and that's not good enough for us for it to survive so I wish technology was the answer, but I think technology is the way that we're going to learn how bad this situation is and basically why the U.S. is one of the biggest, you know, culprits in basically destroying this planet. Sorry I'm ending it on a positive note. <laughs> but it's like, it's interesting to me how, you know, Ted and I have sort of gravitated toward caring about the same thing. I mean, I, I find that yeah. very fascinating. Yeah. Um, I'm approaching it totally differently because we're offline. I gotta account for every single you know, pound of carbon I put into the world and I can measure it. And we actually don't measure that. And we're not honest, there's no perpetual motion machine. To put in clean energy takes more, puts more carbon into the earth than basically it will ever yeah. save in its lifetime. So now let me add to that. Yeah. Nine years ago, we put in a photovoltaic system on our property in Los Altos Hills. I look at it as a great investment. You know, as a retiree, they say, buy muni bonds, and what do you get? You put a little 3% or so after tax return. This is about the equivalent of a 13 to 14% tax-free return on net investment. Now, the one thing I would fault because of the PG&E's cost structure we decided to go for about 80% of our electricity wouldn't it be better if the cost structure promoted us to do 120 or 150% and we would be a net supplier of energy to our neighbors and in a way that doesn't dump carbon dioxide in so the I'll add to that <laughs> we're, we're gonna go back and forth <laughs> Everything that, when you do comparisons like this, all these numbers are made up. We have the capability on our property to generate 3.3 million watts of energy. So I'm, I'm going to be a net supplier someday, but none of it makes sense. Why? So when you use power, it's artificially tier 1, tier 2, through tier 4. You basically get up to like 40 cents a kilowatt hour. That's all artificial. Try to sell it back to, you know, the grid and they'll only pay six cents a kilowatt hour because that's the value when you're competing against coal, you know, liquor, you know, um, uh, not fuels, fuels yeah. and, uh, you know, whatever's out there. Even our uh, uh, Mark Little, one of our trustees, who was the chief technical officer at um, uh, GE, you know, he said the most efficient wind turbine in the world is 10 cents a kilowatt hour when it's fully financed. And, and you just have to look at your, your, your bill, you know, and, and you just start realizing like all this other, you know, forms of, you know, generation is artificial because we basically put a value on it that actually you can't generate. If you want to basically see what's really going on, we should pay PG&E for distribution costs, six cents a kilowatt hour. 
and basically then we turned it over to eBay so I will sell it to my neighbor and you know which is basically he's right next door so distribution is very low but he's going to be buying it from me at six cents a kilowatt hour because he could buy it from PG&E for the same price so we're in this position which is everything is artificial all these numbers are made up there's no perpetual motion machine and all these things are being built over like let's say in China so that they get our pollution and we even export all our garbage over to them called recyclables which they put 90% into the you know landfills so we have to be very careful when we basically say we get great returns yes in our society when it's all manu you know it's all lies to begin with we get really good returns but if you want to do 3.3 megawatts and you want to do solar arrays or wind generators, you can't break even. So I, I, I teach thermodynamics, yep. and one thing, the first thing we teach our students is that there is no perpetual motion machine, right? <laughs> <laughs> so that, you're right about that. I want to I end on a positive note. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and, and that's not about, I'm not going to claim that there is a perpetual motion machine, but you know, you read newspapers these days and it, there's a feeling that the world is going downhill and things are collapsing. And yet, as the Dean of Engineering at RPI, I see very, very bright people on a daily basis. I interact with our students. And just like the two of you who have already changed the world, uh, you know, every day I interact with our students, I am, it makes me more and more optimistic that we will find the right kind of solutions for these challenging problems that you've thrown at us. And, and so, Thank you very much for, for talking to us. Why Not Change the World is typically recorded in MPAC, the Curtis R. Prem Experimental Media and Performing Arts Center. Thank you to the MPAC staff for their assistance, and thank you for listening.